Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Make Walters your spot to watch the Capitals march to the Stanley Cup. Plenty of TVs and beer selections. Game one is Tuesday night in Florida. Puck drops at 730. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the 1-0 pitch. Swinging a high, high drive with the wind capturing this one. Headed toward the cove. It's way back there and it is gone. It is a splashdown hit into McCovey Cove for Jason Bossler. It's now San Francisco 5 and the Nationals 3. Pitch to Estrada. Swinging a slow roller to short. Charging an Escobar. He gloves and flips on the run low. Bell can't pick it. The ball gets by him. And Crawford will come in to score. And it's now 8-3 in favor of the Giants. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, May 1st, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Oracle Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, April has become May. It has been said many times that April showers bring May flowers. Uh, let us hope that starting on this Sunday, May 1st, that this Nats season becomes more worthy of flowers, worthy of us throwing some bouquets. We'd love to throw some bouquets at the Nats, and we certainly threw some bouquets at the Nats while we were basically delirious uh, very early on Saturday morning off the 14-4 win at the Giants in Game 1 of this series on Friday night. But Saturday, unfortunately, ended up not being a bouquet-worthy day. Uh, Saturday ended up being a fitting end to a bad first month of the season for the Nats. A 9-3 loss at the Giants in Game 2 of this three-game series. Nats now have lost nine of their last 10 games. Nats this season now just 7-16. and 16. Uh, Nats offense on Saturday was good, but certainly could have been a lot better. Ultimately scored just the three runs. The pitching was a problem. The defense was a problem. Mark, you are at Oracle Park, which is one of the most beautiful places in all of Major League Baseball. The Nats performance on Saturday, unfortunately, did not mirror the beauty of Oracle Park. No, it, it resembled more, Al, the, um, what's coming out of the seagulls that are flying overhead now after the game, perhaps what's being dropped by them onto the uh, stands and the field is a little more emblematic of what we saw from the Nationals' defense in this game. Uh, it was not good. It was just not good. Now, I mean, not to say that the pitching was great, not to say that the hitting didn't miss some golden opportunities there where they could have made something happen, but the thing that stood out to me most about this game was the defense, and they were charged officially with three errors, but there were several more plays out there that could have been made and were not made. There was one great play by Michael Franco tracking down a ball in the right field corner and throwing to the plate. 
Although that happened to come on a Yoan Adone error on a pickoff attempt. And now Adone from the stretch for the first time. Kicks and delivers. And a bunt. Off the mound comes Adone. He has a play. Low throw, a bad throw by Bell. And by the third baseman, Franco, backing it up. Rounding third, heading for the plate floor. His throw to the plate. The tag by Adams. He is out, and the side is retired. Otherwise, it was ugly out there, and I think that, more than anything, sticks with Davey Martinez after a game like this. He understands pitching staff's not going to be great every day, understands hitting isn't going to happen every night, but you got to make the plays in the field. You can't help the other team out, and they did that way too much in this game. Got to play good defense, you know, and uh, we were playing good defense, you know, and, and, but today was not good, not good on the field. Yeah, kind of an odd game. Nats were up 2-0 in the third, end up losing 9-3, so the Nats lost the rest of the game. 9-1. You know, the final score ends up being lopsided. The game for like, I don't know, five, six innings really wasn't lopsided. And then things really changed with the Giants putting up a four spot in the bottom of the sixth inning. Now, with that four spot in the bottom of the sixth inning, we had a crucial defensive uh, miscue in that inning. Our friend Alcides Escobar, a run scoring throwing error in that Giants four-run six. He had a runner on second, two outs, Kyle Finnegan on the mound. Look, Finnegan was not great. This Nats bullpen overall was not good in this game, but Finnegan does induce a grounder off the bat of Tyro Estrada to Escobar. Escobar, though, makes a weak throw that Josh Bell failed to catch on one hop. So, you know, I know Escobar got charged with the air. I certainly have been hard on old Alcides, but he did have another decent offensive game on Saturday. And actually, I thought on this play, look, he wasn't good, but Bell could have made that catch. And I've now said this to you multiple times. Josh Bell, as much of a pleasant surprise as he was last year defensively, he's done this multiple times this season. He has not caught balls that could have been caught, but were not. That was a one-hop throw. That's a catchable ball. He doesn't make the catch. That error looms large. And that was one of many miscues in this game. That's finished the game with three errors. Uh, you had pitchers committing errors, but that uh, officially charged error to Escobar, probably the biggest defensive miscue of the game. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, Bell almost made a pretty great stretch on that. And, and I got to say, for the most part, he's done a really good job over there and has saved some other errors from happening. So while, yes, there were plays that he could have made that he didn't, in the bigger picture, I think it's pretty positive what Josh Bell has done at first base. And just the way that Escobar made that throw, it was so casual. And I don't exactly understand why. These are sloppy mistakes by him. Maybe I'm overstating it, but I feel like at this point, any ball that's hit towards him in his general vicinity, you like hold your breath because you're sort of bracing for something really bad to happen. Sometimes he makes a play, sometimes he doesn't. There was a lot of action for him in this particular game for whatever reason, just a lot of balls hit towards him. But it just he has not looked comfortable at all there this year. And I'm not saying that Alcides Escobar should be a gold glove shortstop. But based on what we saw last year, he's at least serviceable over there. And this year he's been really, you know, one of the worst statistically, one of the worst defensive shortstops in baseball. And not sure I have a, a really good reason for why there's been that much drop off from last year to this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, my guess would be that he's showing his age, that this is the decline. You know, some guys get old at 38. Some guys get old at 32. You know, maybe that's what's happening with Patrick Corbin, honestly. And some guys get old at 35. This is Escobar's age 35 season. As we've discussed, the Nats sort of, you know, plucked him out of the baseball netherworld last year. He was surprisingly productive, but you know, that may have been just like one last blaze of glory last season. And now he has regressed to what he was prior to what he was with the Nats last year. Escobar had not played in the majors since 2018 prior to coming to the Nats 
last season. I mean, there was another play in this game that was another one of these past-diving Escobar plays. Uh, Josh Rogers came into the game, bottom of the fifth, bases loaded, nobody out, game tied at two. He retired Brandon Crawford on a first-pitch pop-out, got Tyro Estrada to ground into an RBI force-out for a 3-2 Giants lead, then gave up a two-out first-pitch pinch RBI single to Mauricio Dubon, past-diving Alcides Escobar. There's that phrase again. For a 4-2 Giants lead. Swing and a ground ball. Through the hole. Past the diving Escobar to his right. And into left a base hit. It's now the Giants 4. The Nationals 2. So it's interesting we're talking about Escobar and his defense again. Because we had something rather interesting pop up on Twitter on Saturday. Now look, Twitter is uh, a cesspool of negativity and snark so often. But Twitter also is a means of gathering news, right? I mean, I think there is value to Twitter in that regard. And Twitter also is a place where you have teams put out highlights and put out things to keep fans engaged with those teams and with their games. And Cade Cavalli pitched for AAA Rochester on Saturday. Five and a third no-hit innings to earn the win in the opener of a doubleheader split for the Rochester Red Wings. But also for the Red Wings on Saturday was a diving play in the field by Luis Garcia at second base in the shift. Again, the pitch from Cavalli. Swing to hard ground ball into the shift right side. Diving stop and shallow right from Garcia. Gets to his feet, throws the first. They got him. A great play from Garcia. Now, as we've come to know, not every diving play is some great defensive play. But, you know, this was a nice sort of highlight-worthy thing that you put out there if you're a Triple A team, try to garner some fan engagement on social media. Well, the Rochester Red Wings, in their, like, caption above the video, did the thing on Twitter. And if you're on Twitter, you're familiar with this. If you're not on Twitter, I'll try and explain it. One of the things that gets used on Twitter to mock a phrase or a belief is writing out the phrase with a lowercase letter, then an uppercase letter, then a lowercase letter, then an uppercase letter. You write it in a very like uh, immature way so that it is read as if to say, okay, so I'll, I'll read the tweet. The tweet is, but he needs to work on his defense. But the way the tweet is written, it's meant to be read, but he needs to work on his defense, right? The, in other words, you're a dummy if you think that Luis Garcia needs to work on his defense. And it's an ironic thing to write because Garcia makes his diving play. And I saw this, Mark, and I'm like, wow, the AAA affiliate of the Nationals is poking fun at this idea that Luis Garcia needing to work on his defense is wrong, is overrated. And it made me laugh because that's coming from the Nationals organization. Like, it's not really fans in the media saying that. It's the Nats as an organization that have been saying that Luis Garcia needs to work on his defense. I don't know if someone at Rochester is going to get a phone call from Mike Rizzo, but that tweet came off like Rochester was poking fun at Rizzo, was poking fun at the big league club. And with these Alcides Escobar misadventures on Saturday, I thought that was an interesting sort of twist to the whole thing uh, on Saturday with the Nats. First of all, that was an excellent description you gave there of how to read a tweet in that certain style. So bravo to you for explaining that one, because I don't think I could have explained it as well as you did. So I took note of the exact same thing and kind of rolled my eyes at it because, you know, often that sort of style of a tweet is meant to maybe mock media members or fan speak, like you said, of giving an opinion on something that they're trying to say isn't actually true. But you're right. I haven't seen Luis Garcia play at all this year in Rochester. I'm gathering what I know off of the stats from the games and off of what I've heard from Nationals officials about him. And what I can tell you is that uniformly what they are telling me 
is that Luis Garcia needs to work on his defense at shortstop in particular. Now, that play he made, it was a great highlight. He's playing in the shift at second base, diving catch basically in, in shallow right field. As we saw from him the last two years, he's better at second base than he is at shortstop. The thing is, where this team is right now, the feeling is that Luis Garcia is at least being groomed to try to be this team's shortstop of the future. So really, it's all about how he does at that position. And the reason that he hasn't been called up at this point is because club officials do not believe that defensively he's ready to play that position at shortstop. He officially has four errors there. I was told that it probably should be higher than that, that there's been some generous officiating scoring down there. And even beyond any of that, it's just about the comfort level or lack of comfort level, the inability that he has shown at times to consistently from play to play and pitch to pitch, stay in the game and make all the routine plays. They really need him to work on that. And I think they feel like that needs to happen in the lower pressure environment of AAA. And that if you put him up here, I know we can say, hey, listen, this team isn't winning anyways. Is he really going to be any worse than Escobar is at shortstop? That may all be true. But I think the feeling among the organization, right or wrong, is that to bring him up here, you would risk it causing more damage to him in the long run and prevent him from becoming the kind of player they still think he can be. That's the message I'm getting from club officials. Yeah, I mean, you know that there's a reason the Nats aren't calling him up because it's just too obvious to call him up. And the Nats aren't dummies, right? So they obviously have their reasons for not summoning him back to the major league level. It's just frustrating for everyone because as we have detailed Alcides Escobar is really struggling. I mean, Alcides Escobar came into Saturday with minus four defensive runs saved over 151 innings at shortstop this season. That's a high negative defensive run saved to accumulate over just 151 innings. And, you know, it's not like this season is an outlier. For all of the talk of his defense last year, he had minus three defensive runs saved for the Nationals last season. In his previous Major League season, 2018, he had minus 21 defensive run saved with the Kansas City Royals. The year before that, minus 11 defensive run saved for the Royals in 2017. So, you know, you're kind of just twiddling your thumbs here. And especially when his replacement, Lucius Fox, plays, right? And he struggles arguably even worse than Alcides Escobar struggles. You know, that's the frustration. Now, with Alcides, we'll say this, he has been better offensively these last two games. And that's been nice to see that. He on Saturday went two for four with an RBI double and an infield single. He had a first pitch opposite field RBI double to right field for a one nothing Nats lead in a two-run third. He, in the top of the fourth, had one of his 2021-esque Alcides Escobar garbage-type hits, a one-out infield single up the middle, uh, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. So maybe he's getting going here, but I mean, I think we all realize that he's a road to nowhere. And if Luis Garcia can just get to a point of being passable defensively at shortstop, bring him up because it's not really doing anyone any good. Unless you're trying to tank, it's not doing anyone any good to continue to put Escobar out there. Yeah, so here's the other thing that occurs to me that it reminds me a little bit of. And if you remember in 2019, early in the year, Trey Turner gets hurt, breaks his thumb, and it was Wilmer Defoe all of a sudden is our everyday shortstop, and he is struggling big time. The team is falling apart. They're on their way to 19 and 31. But before they got to that point, Carter Keeboom, who at that time is still their top position player prospect and was still a shortstop at AAA, was hitting something like 350 
in Fresno. And everybody's saying, when are you going to call him up? And Rizzo said, we need him to work on more, especially defensively. It finally got to the point that Rizzo felt like we have to make the move. And it was in late April he made the move. And Kibum came up and he was overwhelmed, especially in the field at shortstop. And it cost them some games for a team that was in a pennant race or trying to be in a pennant race. I have no idea if Carter Keboom's career changes, the outlook of it changes at all, if he doesn't get called up there and he has more time to work at AAA. But I would not be shocked if somewhere in the back of Mike Rizzo's mind, he thinks about that and thinks, yes, we could use a better shortstop right now. But if the goal this year isn't really about winning games, I'm not in a pennant race this time. I'm not going to make the panic move. I'm not going to call anybody up who I think is a part of this team for the long term until I am convinced that he's ready. I can understand that. And I, I do wonder if maybe in the back of his mind, he's remembering what happened a few years ago with Kibu. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, my take on stuff like that always is those who can do, those who cannot, do not. And so if you are that sort of susceptible to a brief stint not going well dooming you, then you probably were never going to be great to begin with. Mike Trout struggled in his initial call-up to the majors in 2011, got sent back down, comes back up in 2012, and he's become you know, one of the greatest players ever. So it's like, I think if you can do it, you ultimately will demonstrate an ability to do it. Look, we don't know if Luis Garcia can do it, right? But there's enough there to kind of wonder. And there are a lack of options to where you say, well, why not Luis Garcia? Let's see what he can do. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Here it comes. 
Swinging a ground ball. Passed it under the glove of the diving Fossler. Rounding third, Hernandez. He's going to score. The pump fake on the left fielder now will throw it in towards second. Holding Robles at first. And so that'll be a base hit and an RBI for Robles. Seeking that one under the glove of Vossler. Another hit for Robles. It's now the Giants 4 and the Nationals 3. I mentioned I'll see Escobar being better offensively in recent games. How about Victor Robles? Are we maybe possibly seeing Victor Robles find himself again as a batter here? Victor Robles on Friday night in the 14-4 win at the Giants went 4-for-5 with a two-run double, an RBI single, and two other singles. And Robles in this 9-3 loss at the Giants on Saturday, 2-for-3 with an RBI single, another single, and a walk. Uh, Robles in the Nats' two-run third had a leadoff seven-pitch walk. Robles in the top of the fourth had a one-out single to left field despite having been down to the count at 1.02. And Robles in the Nats' one-run sixth, a two-out RBI single past Giants third baseman Jason Vossler to cut the Nats' deficit to 4-3. You know, we have had some changes with the Nats, right, since last season in terms of the coaching staff and player development. One of the big changes the new hitting coach, Darnell Coles. He's been working a lot with Victor Robles. You know, I don't want to plant the flag of victory here, but this would seem to speak well of the work that Coles has been doing with Robles. He has looked better here recently. He has. And we've talked about the mechanical switch, raising the hands higher up before he starts to swing. Victor is really taking to it now. Obviously, they are pounding it into his head to always do that. And something interesting here, I remember we talked about like they really started work on this late in spring training. Remember, he had a couple of games off in spring training. And we said uh, that that was because Darnell wanted to work with him in the cage on some different things. And we're like, why are you doing this now with a week to go or whatever it was? Shouldn't this have been done prior to all this? And I was talking with someone the other day about it and they made the point. And it's a great point that we maybe tend to forget because of everything that happened over the winter. Coaches could not work with players this winter because of the lockout. They could not have any contact with them until the lockout ended, which was essentially the first day of spring training or a couple days before spring training. And I remember a year ago, in the offseason, when the Nationals acquired uh, Kyle Schwarber, Kevin Long flew out there to meet with him and work with him in person over the winter and start to establish the foundation for what became a great first half of the season for Kyle Schwarber before he was traded. Well, Darnell Coles never had the chance to do any of that with Victor Robles until spring training was already underway. Couldn't see him, you know, could watch videos of him, but couldn't really see up close and have that interaction of any suggestions he could make. And so it wasn't until March that that process happened. And so obviously that wasn't ideal for getting a guy going to start the season, but maybe now they've had some time together. We are seeing the payoff. Now, I have no idea. It's two games. I'm not going to get too excited yet. We need to see this over a much larger sample, but the results are encouraging and you do feel like there is the potential for this to actually be a little bit of a breakthrough for a guy who has desperately needed one. Yeah, I mean, it feels different. To your point, it's a small sample size, but it feels different in that you're seeing multi-hit games. I mean, those have been so few and far between for Victor Robles the last few years, and he's, for the most part, making good contact. Like, these aren't cheapy, fluky hits. Like, he he looks like he's making contact. I tell you, he looks like he's starting to play with some confidence again, too. There seems to be like that Robles swagger back when he's batting and when he's uh, getting on the first base. So it's been good to see. I mean, he's, you know, he's been like a lost soul offensively these last few years. You talk about like what matters this season. I tell you, if you fix Victor Robles, that is a huge win for this season. That is massive for this Nationals team. If somehow they are able to right the Robles ship, he's still young enough to where he could be a real piece for them 
for years to come. And, you know, it's easy to forget, but I always remind myself of this. Victor Robles was the higher touted prospect as compared to Juan Soto. Like when they were coming up, Robles was the supposed blue chipper and Soto was, yeah, he's nice, but nobody ever expected this from Juan Soto. Like Robles was the guy. Robles was the reason that you felt comfortable losing Bryce Harper in free agency. Well, they have this guy, Victor Robles coming up. So it's it's so funny how things change, but you know, that, that talent is still there. That guy is still in existence. Funny you should mention that, Al, because would you believe that as we speak right now, Victor Robles and Juan Soto have the same batting average, 241 each. And for a moment in the game, Robles was actually ahead of him until he made it out in his final at bat. Now, the OPS difference is 223 points in Soto's favor. So let's, again, not get too excited here. It's also a little bit of a reflection of Soto, unfortunately, you know, kind of struggling right now from what we're used to seeing from him. But I agree. If I boil down the season to like, what are the best things that could happen? What are the most important things, the most important players this season? I would say Juan Soto, Cabert Ruiz, Victor Robles. If you get to the end of the season and those three are clearly a big part of this moving forward, obviously Soto is going to be. But, you know, if he does what you expect from him and then if Cabert Ruiz and Victor Robles establish themselves as clearly going to be part of this team moving forward, that's as important as almost anything else that could happen this year. So a long way to go, but really encouraging signs the last few days. Soto on Saturday did go 0 for 4. Uh, K-Bet Ruiz on Saturday was not the Nats starting catcher. Riley Adams was. He went 1 for 4 with an infield single and a couple of strikeouts. Josh Bell, though, did continue to hit uh, on Saturday. Man, is he locked in. 2 for 4 was Bell on Saturday. Had a double and a single. Top of the first, a two-out first pitch double off the right field bricks at Oracle Park. Uh, Bell in the top of the third, one-out single through the right side of the infield. Uh, Josh Bell now on the season is batting 365 with a 460 on base and a 527 slugging percentage. He legitimately has been one of the best hitters in the majors so far this season. Like, I'm not overstating it. Offense is down. A lot of guys aren't hitting. Josh Bell is hitting. He has been tremendous for this team offensively. And consistent day in and day out. There's been very few games, individual games. You said, boy, Bell didn't look so good the plate tonight. No, he's been doing it every single night from both sides of the plate. And we're getting close to the point. May 13th was the date last year when it finally clicked for him and took off. And I've been looking forward to when we get to that point. I know it's arbitrary just to pick a date like that. But when we get to May 13th this year, I'm going to look up what his total numbers over a calendar year are. They're going to look really, really impressive. He's going to be hitting in the 290s with an OPS right around 900, something like 27 to 28, 29 homers, 90 plus RBIs. He has been really, if, if you forget about those first six weeks last year, which had various reasons for that, why that was, ever since then, he has been everything I think the Nationals could have hoped he would be and even better than they thought he might be in the field. And remember, this is a contract season for Josh Bell. The Josh Bell price may be going up here, maybe going up by a lot more than we ever anticipated. So if the Nats want to get an in-season extension done, they may have to end up paying a lot more than they ever thought. And if Bell makes it to free agency, he could end up getting himself maybe a much bigger contract than we ever anticipated this coming offseason. You know who his agent is, of course. 
Mr. Scott Boris. So you yes, know, sir. you know that Scott is going to have a whole uh, booklet together in the off season to show teams about explaining how Josh Bell is the best hitter in baseball and uh, why that means he is worth X amount, whatever it might be. He's going to get a good deal, whether it's from the Nationals or someone else. Uh, I suppose I'm going to take the Al Galdi approach to this is uh, if he keeps doing this, then come July, maybe you can get even more from him in a trade than you would have otherwise. 100%, man. 100%. The Josh Bell trade value is spiking right now. Got to get Nelson Cruz going. Well, I tell you, you could flip Bell and Cruz come uh, the trade deadline. That'd be nice for this Nats rebuild. Well, Joanna Doan was the Nats starting pitcher on Saturday. And unfortunately for Yoan, he struggled again. Things have not gone so well for Joanna Doan as a starting pitcher, a surprising maker of the Nats season opening rotation. But Things have just not gone well, aside from the one outing. And that's what's so odd about this, right? Yoan Adone is the guy who broke the seal on a Nat starting pitcher finally pitching into the seventh inning of a game this season. Yoan Adone was the man who pulled that off. Game two, that doubleheader sweep of the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park on April 19th. Adone, six into third scoreless innings with five strikeouts, became the first starting pitcher for the Nats in this uh, regular season to complete at least six innings in a game. But his other outings this season really have not gone well. And Yoan Adone on Saturday ends up giving up four runs in four innings. Uh, he gave up uh, four hits, a double and three singles. He issued three walks and two hit by pitches. He did have five strikeouts. He does have strikeout stuff. That's good. That's part of what the appeal of Yoan Adone is. But he threw 86 pitches over his four innings. He also committed a throwing error in the game. And Yoan Adone now over his five starts this season, has an ERA of 7.33. So as options hopefully do start to arise in terms of starting pitching options for the Nats, you wonder if Adone could be that next man uh, out of the rotation here. I mean, 7.33 over ERA for a guy who you know wasn't supposed to be in the rotation to begin with. I know Davey Martinez did lobby for him to be in the rotation, but uh, aside from that one outing against the Diamondbacks, things just have not gone very well for him so far this season. No, and what we've seen, unfortunately, you see the good and the bad. There's obviously potential there. He has good stuff. He's throwing 96, 97. Like you said, the strikeout numbers are good, but he's really raw still. The command can elude him. He can have singular innings in which everything kind of falls apart on him, which unfortunately has been a problem. And in this game, you just saw, could not consistently throw enough strikes. He is all over the place. Those were long innings. The pitch count was high. He was lucky to make it to the fifth inning, having only allowed the two runs. It probably should have been more. There was that great play I mentioned earlier by Franco to bail him out on the throwing air. And it just felt like he was flirting with disaster all the way through it. And Listen, for a 23-year-old with as little professional experience as he has, we should not be surprised by any of this. You just want to hope that you see enough good things in there to say, okay, there is something there. We think he can uh, blossom into something. And you want to see improvement as this all goes on. Now, it's only, you know, a month into this. So it's hard to, you know, evaluate a lot there and say, well, he should have improved, you know, between start one to start four, like it's going to be that different. But facing the same team twice in a row, I kind of worried that might be an issue for him. Perhaps it was. Let's see. They're not ready to make any moves yet, but you can understand why, you know, his hold on that spot is is tenuous, I would say at best. Yeah. I mean, in a season like this, you'd like to see Joanna Doan be given a chance to kind of grow, but he also does have to demonstrate improvement. Like it can't keep being that he gets uh, he gets rocked like this. And, you know, you have something like the bottom of the third on Saturday. This was tough. He gives up two runs despite retiring each of the first two batters he faces. 
You know, he gets two outs, and then he issues a two-out hit-by-pitch of Wilmer Flores, followed by a two-out seven-pitch walk of Brandon Crawford, followed by a two-out two-run double by Tyro Estrada to the left center field gap to tie the game at two, despite Estrada having been down to the count at one point, 0-2. I mean, you had multiple opportunities in that inning to get out of the inning without giving up any runs. You end up giving up two runs, and, you know, you put on two guys hit by pitch, then a seven-pitch walk. It's like that's the kind of thing that you clearly want to avoid. He gets charged also with two runs in the bottom of the fifth. He, in that inning, uh, walked Wilmer Flores on seven pitches, despite Flores having been down in the count at one point, 1-2. Well, speaking of uh, putting base runners on base, uh, the Nets bullpen on Saturday was not good. You know, it it feels like this season, the Nets bullpen is either great or is really bad. And uh, Saturday, unfortunately, was an example of the latter. Five Nats relievers. Yes, uh, Davey hit for five once again on Saturday. Happy to use five relievers. Five Nats relievers combined to give up five runs, three earned in four innings. Uh, We saw Josh Rogers, although not for very long. Uh, We saw Erasmo Ramirez. We saw Kyle Finnegan. We saw Andres Machado. We saw Francisco Perez. Uh, You've talked about this. You have Nats relievers auditioning right now. I don't think anyone looked great on Saturday. (laughs) I don't think the additions went all so well. So this is going to be interesting to me. And look, honestly, I think we're going to see all these guys at various points throughout the year. But in terms of cutting down, I don't think there's an obvious person to cut down on here because just about everyone, it feels like, is flawed to some degree. Sure. And that's the problem. You know, you were hoping that it would be a tough decision in the opposite direction. Like, man, how are we going to find two guys <laughs> to cut? No, I think they have more than two that they could make a move with here. We'll see. They've got to make that move after the weekend and uh, remove two pitchers from the staff. The thing that bugged me about this one is, and this is so annoying to me, they needed Three different pitchers to get through the fifth inning when you start with a Doan beginning the inning. Then you go to Josh Rogers, who gets two outs. Then you go to Ramirez, who gets the final out. Now you go to the sixth, and you go Ramirez and Finnegan, and then I think they needed Machado to finish that inning. And so it's just like you can't get through the fifth and the sixth innings without going through five total relievers, making two pitching changes in each inning. That's frustrating. Now, maybe Davey could have just left Josh Rogers in and said, hey, you're my long man today. I'm going to let you keep going. I think once the bullpen is pared down, we might start seeing more of that with him, with Paolo Espino. I think Davey has hinted at that possibility. But for right now, he's he's playing matchups in those middle innings in what was still a very competitive game at that point. And those guys just could not get the couple of outs they needed. The defense didn't help as well. But that to me was so frustrating. It's like all of a sudden a game that It was there for the taking, and you say, okay, well, the starter got knocked out in the fifth, but let's see if we can get through this and maybe make it to the seventh inning before we start going to our back-end bullpen guys. And instead, he's using all these guys just to get six outs in the fifth and the sixth innings. That's frustrating. It's painful. Uh, It's rough. And, you know, if you're a Nats fan and you have watched a lot of their games, you kind of develop a sense for these things. This is going to be one of those days with the bullpen. And Saturday, as the game went on, very much reeked of, you know, being one of those days for the bullpen. We saw Erasmo Ramirez give up a leadoff homer to Jason Vossler to right field into McCovey Cove uh, in what ended up being that Giants four run six inning. Had you ever seen a home run into McCovey Cove live at Oracle Park? Uh, yes, I have. I want to say I saw Barry Bonds at least do it a few times back in the day and a few others as well. It's a great setting here. There's something about when a ball goes up in the air to right field, everybody has a little extra juice, a little extra excitement behind it. And then, you know, people in the park can't tell for sure if it hit the water. So they almost have to wait for the replay to show up. And then 
They've got that great camera angle from high up in the upper deck that pans out, shows a splash down, and they all got all the kayaks going for it. As Tim Shovers reminds me, Bryce Harper took Hunter Strickland into McCovey Cove famously in the 2014 playoffs, setting off a three-year feud that ended in uh, quite the brawl in this ballpark in 2017. Hunter Strickland now. Here we go. Harper's charging the mound. Oh, my goodness. It's a lot of fun. It's it's such a great part of this ballpark. It's so perfect the way it's set up here. And, you know, it's funny. It's only 309 feet down the right field line. You would think there'd be a lot more of them. But the wall is high. The wind can be pretty fierce here. The weather is not, you know, hardly ever warm during the course of a season. So it takes some muscle to pull that off and hit one out there. And so it's 92 of them now in the 20 plus years of the stadium. And yeah, I've, I've definitely seen a handful of them. And it's it's each time it's pretty cool to see it. I think you really could make the case that Oracle Park is the number one ballpark in the majors. I mean, this is all subjective, of course, but I think it's gorgeous. And the background setting is tremendous. It's a park with a lot of character. You know, you have that Levi's Landing in right field. You know, you have the brick wall there in right field, the home of Covey's Cove thing, hitting balls into the water. The city of San Francisco in and of itself is a very attractive city. Like, I don't know. There are a lot of great ballparks. I think Oracle might be number one. For me, it's San Francisco and Pittsburgh. You can put them side by side, make the case. And, and what I love about them both, and I'll even put Camden Yards and Baltimore in this category. They're all perfect for their own city. They immediately give you that feeling of what being in that city is like. This ballpark doesn't look like any other one, and it wouldn't work anywhere else because it has to be in San Francisco with the water and everything else. Pittsburgh works because of the bridges, the river, the downtown view. Baltimore works because, of course, of the warehouse. So many other ballparks have tried to mimic that style since Camden Yards first opened. Nobody can do it exactly because that was naturally there. They built it into the natural surroundings. So that's what I love in ballparks, the ones that just feel like they are right for that city and they immediately evoke uh, feelings of that particular city. And this is this one is, you know, if not number one, it's very close, high at the top of the list. One more item. Congratulations to Ryan Zimmerman. We knew that he was being honored by his alma mater, the University of Virginia, on Saturday. His number 11 being retired uh, for the Virginia baseball program. But the day, April 30th, is now Ryan Zimmerman Day in Virginia. Uh, the governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, got involved and uh, officially recognized the contributions of Ryan Zimmerman uh, to the Commonwealth with a proclamation. This is a really cool thing that Virginia did for Ryan Zimmerman. It's obviously well-deserved, but that's a pretty cool deal. I mean, college baseball at some schools is a huge deal, and Virginia is one of those schools. Virginia's had a very good baseball program over the years, and so for Ryan Zimmerman to have his number retired by Virginia, you know, this isn't some like podunk baseball program and like Zimmerman's the only guy to ever be good from Virginia. Like, no, a lot of good players have come from Virginia. Sean Doolittle came from Virginia. And uh, that's awesome. I mean, Zim's going to be honored multiple times, but uh, this is pretty cool for him to have this uh, day as he did on Saturday. Yeah. Mark Reynolds as well was there back in the day. And here's the thing. Virginia is an elite program now. They've won a national championship not that long ago, kind of consistently top programs. Back when Zim was there, they were still growing into that. And so he helped lay that foundation to turn the program into what it is now. He never got to have that kind of postseason success uh, that those who followed have. So he really is a kind of like with the Nationals, helped lay the foundation for what the organization or the program there would become someday. And uh, it's fitting that he gets that honor there. You know, Ryan Zimmerman is D.C., but he's also more specifically Virginia. Grew up in uh, Tidewater area, 
goes to UVA, signs and plays for the Nationals, lived in Northern Virginia his whole career. It's a special player who's really associated with this region. And uh, that's a nice little precursor to what we're going to have on June 18th, I believe it is, for Ryan Zimmerman Day at Nationals Park when they will retire his number before the Phillies game. You tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. That's Nats chat podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats chat podcast, just hit up Tim Shovers. Again, the email address is Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. Uh, Nats chat is on the radio on Sunday morning, Sunday mornings at nine on 1061 ESPN in Richmond. You can listen online at ESPNRichmond.com and Sunday mornings at 9 on Sports Radio 96.5 FM at 8.50 AM in the Hampton Roads area. You can listen online at Sports Radio 965 FM.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. Josiah Gray is set to be the Nats starting pitcher for the Sunday series finale at the Giants. So that'll be exciting, and that'll give us uh, some good stuff to talk about. Hopefully a Nats win uh, come the uh, Monday installment of the pod for Sunday's game. But until then, for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for back to this Thank you.